This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Northrop Grumman, the value of performance. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, December 6th, the Washington Post held a Transformers Defense Summit headlined by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. General Dunford discussed how the Pentagon is modernizing America's armed forces and revealed key military challenges facing the country. Director of the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, Dr. Stephen H. Walker, assessed how the United States and other nations are reducing the reliance on traditional machinery of warfighting and adapting military strategy to next-generation technology. In this segment, Dr. Stephen Walker, the head of the country's most advanced military technology agency, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as DARPA, discusses the latest breakthroughs and research underway to safeguard U.S. national security. Let's listen. Turning to this stage to uh, have a conversation with Dr. Stephen Walker, who's the director of DARPA. He has been DARPA's director uh, for the last year. Before that, he was uh, acting director and was deputy director, I think, since 2012. So has been in the DARPA operations now for a long time. Uh, DARPA, as I'm sure everybody in the audience knows, uh, is our amazing uh, government uh, ideas laboratory. We credit it with inventing the Internet. Sorry, Al Gore, but it was really... Uh, and an awful lot of other amazing uh, technology uh, achievements. Um, so I, I want to begin by asking you to talk about uh, this amazing institution that you run and whether it is adapting enough to the ways the world has changed. In a sense, DARPA and the Internet created a new world in which DARPA's old uh, mission doesn't uh, fit right, people sometimes say. The private sector is now so dominant, so, so quick. Uh, uh, Cutting-edge science and technology used to be in the government. Now it's really outside. So start us off by talking about how, in this very different world, you want to manage and, and direct DARPA. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. David, uh, the, um, DARPA is actually 60 years old this year, and we celebrated that over the past year had a big conference last September. Um, you know, DARPA, when it was created, was all about preventing technological surprise. It was created out of the Sputnik uh, uh, era, and, uh, and we, still, that we still look at that as, as our main charter, to prevent technological surprise. And one of the ways we uh, understand we can do that best is by creating technological surprise for the United States. <laughs> Uh, so that mission really hasn't changed, and I don't think it, it I, I think we're still pursuing it uh, robustly. Um, the mission really uh, of, of DARPA is to create breakthrough technologies and capabilities for our national security. Uh, we are focused on national security. Uh, we're a, a department agency, a department agency in the Department of Defense. Um, so you're right. Early on, we focused on uh, the Cold War, uh, very... Uh, prominent programs in uh, nuclear detection, uh, moved into uh, developing things like the stealth, first stealth aircraft in the late 70s. Uh, you mentioned the internet. 
in the late 60s. Um, so we worked on uh, certainly defense problems uh, all along the way uh, during the uh, last decade, Iraq and Afghanistan. We may have gotten a bit too focused on the near term, I think, uh, but obviously our, our war fighters, our men and women were in harm's way. So I think that was appropriate. But after, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, we, we sort of uh, looked up and out again, I think. And, and under Arthur Prabhakar's tenure and my, and my own as the deputy, uh, started focusing on you know, what are the tech races we need to, to win again, especially in the 21st century. And so we're focused on those. DARPA, I think, better than any other organization in the government, uh, bridges the gap between the commercial sector, the private sector, and the defense sector. Um, we bring in people from industry, from universities, from other government agencies, and we have them work at DARPA for a term appointment, usually three to five years. Uh, so we're bringing pe new people in all the time with new ideas, and so I think we're, that's one of the reasons why we're at the, the leading edge of technology, and we are able to adapt to what are the new problems out there, and, and where is technology leading us to, to opportunities to solve them? So I, I loved your comment that your job is to uh, avoid uh, our government being surprised, and the best way to do that is by creating surprises yourself. So I want to ask you to surprise us. I want to ask you to, to tell us a couple of, of technological areas we might not, might not be thinking about sure. where you think some big things are ahead. Well, certainly, uh, I can't tell you everything, <laughs> but I will tell you, I will focus on a few areas. Um, what are the technology, what are the, the tech races we need to win in the 21st century? Uh, you talked to uh, General Dunford uh, just a little bit ago about AI. Uh, AI is one of those areas we need to win, and I, I believe uh, today we are still in the lead, uh, certainly in the foundations of artificial intelligence. Uh, DARPA has had a long history, about 50 years, of investing in artificial intelligence. Some of the first language translation uh, work uh, that came out um, was, was all DARPA-sponsored work. Of course, last, last decade, we focused on uh, self-driving cars, uh, some of the, the self-driving car challenges we did out in the desert, uh, looking at uh, how, to, how to do that, and now some of those are coming to fruition. So. We've had a long history in, in investing in it. Um, when we think about AI and what's relevant today, uh, we think about three waves of AI, three generations. The first being very rules-based artificial intelligence. So you can think of TurboTax. You know, it's a rules-based, if, if this happens, then you do this. Pretty simple. Second wave is what, what folks are really talking about today, which is machine learning. Uh, so uh, machines winning games like Go and uh, being able to do better than humans and recognizing images. Um, this, is, this is what people refer to as machine learning. It, it is being applied today by the commercial sector and also the defense sector. Where DARPA is really headed and where we want to win uh, the race is in what we call third wave AI, which is really looking at how to give machines the ability to understand, uh, say, what they're looking at or, or, or their, their environment giving them contextual reasoning to do that. You know, right now, if a machine sees a picture of a cat sitting on top of a suitcase, uh, the machine will tell you that's a cat and that's a suitcase, 
and the machine would never understand that, hey, maybe you can put that cat in, inside the suitcase. It's smaller than the suitcase. And they wouldn't understand that, you know, you don't really want to do that. Uh, so, but humans understand that, you know, instinctively. So how do you give machines that sort of common sense um, is sort of the next place DARPA's headed. It's very foundational, very much a basic research activity. Uh, but it's going to be critical if we really want machines to be partners to the human and not just tools, which is sort of what they are today. So if you can develop uh, the mach machine version of common sense, I hope the machines will share it with us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, could use, we could use a little more. I asked the program manager, can you do this for humans? So uh, there are some very smart people. Um, Stephen Hawking was one of them. Mm -hmm who, when they look at this prospect of gen generalized AI, mm -hmm. the third wave, as you were putting it, say there is enormous danger to humanity in this prospect. Uh, and I just would ask you to respond to that. You obviously don't, don't believe that. You're not afraid of it. You're actually kind of wanting to push us into it. But what, what, what about the fear factor that so many people express? Sure. Well, in at least in the Defense Department today, we don't see machines doing anything by themselves. We're focused on a human-machine partnership, human-machine symbiosis, we call it. How to make machines smarter, and I think General Dunford said it, how to give the human uh, more time to make that decision, uh, because time and speed in warfare is critical. And so. You know, given what we know about where AI is and the fragility, really, of AI today, even in that second wave of AI, machine learning, it's still a very fragile uh, capability. Uh, these machines, it's called machine learning, but it's really machine uh, trained. It's, these machines are trained on lot, large data sets. Um, if you get outside that, that data set, uh, the machine usually fails pretty badly. Uh, and, um, and so I think we're a long way off from a generalized AI, even in the third wave in, in what we're pursuing. Um, so it, it's not one of those things that keeps me up at night as much as, say, biology. Okay. We'll come to biology <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a minute. But just to ask you about uh, what we were discussing with General Dunford, the, the Chinese uh, uh, threat, if you will, of dominance in this amazing new area. I've heard it said that China is the OPEC of data, that because the Chinese government captures everything that human beings do, every time they move, every time they buy anything, every time they say anything, communicate anything, um, that data is being captured. And so there's this vast reserve of structured data for machines to learn on. And our AI companies, as brilliant as they are, and your scientists at DARPA, as brilliant as all of you are, don't have that same resource of structured data that's available to you, to, your, to machines, right. to learn on. So people argue, we are in a race that we're going to lose because the other guy just has the raw material for machine, the machine learning part of this that we will never hope to match. How would, how would you answer that? Well, I would, I would answer it this way. We have programs in place uh, to uh, not require so much data. So we have a program called Learning with Less Labels, which actually 
is focused on, and, and this is really from a military standpoint, the military doesn't have as much data as the commercial sector about the, what's going on in the environment, the military environment. So can we learn, can we help a machine learn, can we train a machine with less labels, less data, essentially, is, is one of the, the uh, goals of one of the programs we're pursuing. Another is um, because machine learning is so fragile and requires so much data, um, we want to make sure that when we get an answer from a machine, uh, we understand why the machine came up with that answer. And right now, AI is very much a black box. You get an answer, you might get a probability that it's 85% sure that it's the right answer. You don't get much more than that. If we're going to turn humans and machines into a partnership, uh, we need the computer to explain to the human how it came up with that answer. And so a program called Explainable AI is, is focused on that. So we're trying, to, we're trying to deal with this data issue, but you're right, uh, China collects a lot of data on its citizens uh, and uh, more than we do. And so uh, they will have an advantage probably, at least in the near term, uh, uh, on their data sets and, and what they're using them and for. And just, just briefly, uh, I've heard proposals that um, if the United States is going to be competitive, we need to find a way for our AI companies, uh, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, go down the list, to be able to share in some way appropriately anonymized uh, data so that they're in the same competitive ballpark uh, as, the, as the Chinese uh, would take a relaxation of antitrust rules, all sorts of things. Is that a good idea, uh, do you think, or is that uh, basically a waste of time? You, you talk about alternative ways of dealing with the problem. I think it's a good idea as long as you can de-anonymize it, you know, anonymize the data set so that you're not focused on particular people. But if we had access to data that you couldn't actually go back to the individual, I think it would certainly help all of our uh, capabilities in this space. Another technology that uh, is of interest to me, but this audience probably doesn't, doesn't know, uh, Dr. Walker actually headed up uh, Air Force research on for a time, is hypersonics. Sure. And so I, I'd love for you just to explain to the audience what hypersec hypersonic technology is all about. Um, and it's said that this is an area where we really are behind, that the Russians and Chinese have stolen a march on us, have been out there building these hypersonic uh, systems or prototypes. Um, what do you think about that? Are, are we behind? Is, it, is this a world-changing military technology? Just give us the hypersonics uh, 101. Yeah. Uh, hypersonics is flying five times the speed of sound or more. So um, uh, it's a technology that enables not only speed, because you can fly faster, but uh, with speed comes range. So if you think about the Pacific theater and the range is involved in the Pacific, uh, especially with a peer competitor like China, you know, uh, standoff is important. And so uh, hypersonics gives you that cap standoff capability, potentially. Um, we, have, we have been the leaders in hypersonic technology. I think in some areas we still are. However, it's been widely publicized in the press that uh, our peer competitors, China and Russia, are both pursuing the technology with great haste and in some cases, probably from a capability standpoint, are ahead. 
uh, and uh, they are motivated uh, to turn it into a capability, maybe more so than we have been, uh, because uh, they want to uh, have a, a, a capability where they can certainly um, uh, beat our defenses, and we have not been focused from a defensive standpoint on countering hypersonics in this country. What, what on earth, what would be the, the defense against an object moving that fast? <laughs> it's hard, and that's, and that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, they're interested in it. Um, we, uh, uh, there aren't a lot of good options, but certainly if you're going to defend against something like that, you've got to see it. You've got to be able to sense it. Uh, and uh, that may require uh, some improvements in our, uh, in our uh, sensing capability, uh, which we're focused on now with some of the work uh, looking at a new space architecture, potentially. Um, but seeing it and then being able to hit it uh, kinetically, uh, most likely, is, is difficult. And, uh, and that's why they're interested in it, and that's why we're pursuing our own programs. Uh, but our... our uh, where we've been ahead in, in a from a technology standpoint, um, turning it into that capability that we want to go off and uh, build uh, has not been a priority, but it's becoming more so, and I would say in the last couple years under this administration, they've realized the threat uh, and, uh, and some money is being put towards it. Since we're talking about these really cool, uh, out of the movies uh, technologies, what about um, lasers and, and beam weapons. How far away are those? It was always thought they were, they were just, just too heavy, too difficult to deploy. Um, are, are those problems being solved? And is that a technology that's just around the, the next corner? And, and if so, what difference would it make in, sure. in, in this I've, I've never met a four-star general that didn't want a laser on his airplane. Um, <laughs> and it would be really neat. And that would, that would be a really neat technology and capability. As you mentioned, weight is an issue, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the laser development focuses on the front end, the laser piece, and all this power generation and cooling and all this uh, adds up in terms of weight. So I think airplanes will probably be the last sort of application of it, but I think we're very close to having a ship-based uh, capability. Uh, there's been, the Navy's done some demonstrations in that space. Um, I think ground, uh, ground uh, uh, capability Lasers from the ground, from uh, trucks, are being worked pretty, pretty heavily. Uh, and those will be closer than a laser on an airplane. But DARPA, over the last decade or so, has, has been investing heavily in something called solid-state fiber laser technology. And the idea is you can have uh, you know, one, two kilowatt fibers and bundle them together uh, to produce a higher-powered laser. And, and there's a lot of advantages in doing that from an integration standpoint. And so we're making pretty good progress on uh, solid-state fiber laser technology, being able to look at uh, you know tens of kilowatts. Uh, and and in theory, if you could make this work, you really would have a, a beam like in the movies that can zap uh, incoming uh, plane or other object. Also, obviously, would have potential powers against uh, anything in space, presumably. Yes, and um, you know it's always easier in the movies, but uh, but the uh, uh, certainly uh, you can envision capabilities like that, and um, uh, I think we'll be seeing uh, some of that over the next decade. 
You, you mentioned earlier uh, the question of bio-research, and that's on everybody's minds after the startling news from China mm. that a Chinese scientist, still not clear to me how rogue he was, how much supervision he had, but creating uh, new uh, life in a test tube, uh, crossing a, a frontier that is just uh, you know, so uh, important and scary. Um, as you look at the way in which uh, biological sciences are combining with information sciences and you know, new technologies, tell us the things that, that interest uh, DARPA the most uh, in, this, in this area. Where, where are you uh, sure. focusing your, your bio-research? Sure. You know, one of my focus areas for DARPA and where I want to take the agency is to uh, defend the homeland against existential threat. That is actually the first priority uh, that we're, we're focused on now. And under that is where I sort of uh, stick the biology piece because I see it as a real threat, uh, natural pandemics or, or man-made. Uh, and um, so we are focused on biomitigation and sensing technologies of all types. Um, this uh, gene editing, um, technology, CRISPR-Cas9, which is, has become uh, available, has so much potential for good uh, and uh, in curing disease uh, and if it's used properly. Uh, and, and, but part of DARPA is figuring out how, tech, how the technology works, right? So, uh, so we're not surprised. So we created a program called Safe Genes uh, about two years ago now. And the whole focus of the program was to understand how this gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9, and other uh, technologies work. Uh, so that we're not surprised, but then also, how would you be able to turn it off? Uh, how would you be able to reverse it if uh, something got out of control or was, was, it was used for nefarious purposes? Uh, and so this is a very basic research fundamental type program, but, and it's all out in the open, working with universities on this. Uh, but having some success in looking at how to use a technique like CRISPR-Cas9 without what's called off-targeting effects, which affects the rest of the genome if you're just trying to do one edit, uh, having some success there, and having some success at looking at proteins and other ways to actually prevent a gene edit for, from happening. Uh, one example of what we're doing in the biospace, but I think it's really important, uh, and uh, especially, you know, technologies can be used for good and evil, and not everybody shares um, the ethical values that we have in this country, and so we need to be prepared, uh, and that's what that's what we're trying to do. And, and uh, I'm just curious whether you're looking at sensing technologies that, among other things, could detect pandemics uh, earlier, so that we could deal with them yes. uh, more effectively. I have several programs. One's called Prometheus, which is looking at how to detect when people get sick as early as possible. So you can uh, put prevention mechanisms in place so that disease is not spread. Uh, another program in this area called P3, which is trying to develop a vaccine that for an unknown virus that is, that is detected, uh, trying to develop a vaccine that could, could help 20,000 people or more, so at scale, in 60 days or less, which is right now impossible usually takes about 18 months for a vaccine in this country to be developed and, and proven uh, at, at the earliest. And so very DARPA-like program trying to do the impossible here 
but the program manager is making some good strides. That's, that's uh, ex extraordinary. I have a daughter who is a fellow in infectious disease at Johns no. Hopkins, and as soon as we leave, I'm going <laughs> to call my daughter and tell her she has, has a new tool on the way. Does she want to be a program manager? You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, uh, ask, ask her. I'll ask her. Um, so uh, just a, a final um, question that fascinates me, and maybe it's, it's, this is a Washington Post uh, uh, focus, but I worry about a world uh, in which people uh, are able not simply to create fake news, mm -hmm. as we saw the Russians uh, did so aggressively in our la last election, but create fake events, create uh, uh, digital representations of audio and video that appear to be real, but aren't. Uh, and we can see, you just go on, on, online and you'll see examples of this so-called deep fake uh, technology. And I, I wonder whether DARPA has any ideas, whether you're focusing any, any attention on what I would call the, the sort of provenance of fact, knowing where facts come from, knowing that they're real facts, not fake facts, knowing that an event, a photo, a voice, uh, a piece of, of, of of data is real and not yeah. created. Is that something you're working on? It is, uh, and this is something we started back in 2014, actually, so before the Russian interference and all the rest. Uh, you know, this idea of, of um, some people refer to it as gray warfare, hybrid warfare, this, this less than out, outright conflict type of uh, warfare uh, is something that's that's really challenging us because in an open, free society like ours, uh, the first step in trying to counter something like that, I think, is to say, what is the truth? You know, what, what, it, what are the facts? And so back in 2014, DARPA started a program, it's called Metaphor, and the whole purpose of the program was to look at images on the internet and uh, video. Uh, I'm not sure about audio, but definitely image, pictures and video. And develop tools where we could actually uh, use on those pictures in the video and determine if they had been tampered with or not. Uh, and so we've, we've, the program has made a lot of progress in being able to detect things that have been placed in a picture uh, after the fact. And then in video, uh, it turns out when you uh, uh, compress a video and uncompress a video, if you've made changes to it, we've developed tools now that can detect uh, those those additions, those changes to the video, and and, and help a human user, human analyst, uh, f even pinpoint where in the video the changes have been made. So, getting to your point, we are trying to get to a place where uh, we can determine what the real facts are and what's fiction, at least in images and video on the internet. And uh, the comp companies, as you might imagine, out in Silicon Valley, are pretty interested. That's uh, exciting, um, important for, for my business. Um, I have to say, it's time for us to wrap up and Dr. Walker needs to get to another event. Um, this reinforces my impression that DARPA is just about the coolest place in the U.S. <laughs> government. Uh, when I grow up, I really want to get a job at DARPA. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for what's been a wonderful afternoon of discussion. If you'd like to watch highlights from conversations that we had, I invite 
uh, people to uh, visit WashingtonPostLive.com uh, and also learn there about future events. So please join me in thanking Dr. Walker for coming and joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.